You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through I Am are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. This episode is brought to you by Annie's Kit Clubs, delivering creativity right to your mailbox. With nearly 100 years of crafting experience, Annie's helps you try a new craft every month. Crochet or knit an afghan, build your fabric stash, or introduce your kids to crafting. In your kit, you'll receive all the special supplies and expert instructions to make something new every month. As artists, it's important to have a creative outlet and hobby outside of your work and practice, and Annie's can help you learn new skills like woodworking, jewelry making, knitting, or crochet. I learned to crochet last year because I needed a hobby. So I made my first blanket, and it was just a repeat of the same pattern, which was fun, but left me wanting more. So when I got my first Annie's kit, I was so excited to get started on the Moroccan Tile Crochet Afghan Club Kit. I chose this kit so I could make a beautiful blanket and learn new patterns and techniques along the way. I get to build crochet skills month by month while stitching beautiful tiles, which is perfect for advanced beginners, which is what I guess I am. Each kit includes all the yarn and patterns to crochet a new section of your afghan, which is complete after the 10th kit. Annie's also has helpful online video tutorials that walk you through every step of the way, which is my favorite way to learn, but also has paper patterns if that's your style. No matter your age, skill level, or crafting interest, Annie's has a kit club for you. Use our promo code BEYONDTHESTUDIO75 for 75% off your first month of your subscription to their kits at annieskitclubs.com. That's annieskitclubs.com. Thanks for listening, and now for the show. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we have the honor of interviewing Bean Gilsdorf, who is an artist that we've kind of been in talks with for a number of years about uh, coming onto the podcast. And before we hit record, we were just saying how glad we are that we're recording now instead of when we first started talking about five years ago. So thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you. For listeners that are not familiar with your work, would you mind kind of talking about the work that you produce and uh, your career? Sure. I'm an artist and a writer. Uh, I have been working as an art critic since about 2007 or 2008. 
I have a regular studio practice that is based mainly in textiles, although I branch out into sculptural installations and have been working in photography. And, and sometimes I write other things as well, but they tend to be, for example, creative nonfiction essays that are still in some way grounded in the arts. I'm really interested in the, um, I'm sure we'll get into this in, in more detail, but because you are both an artist and a writer, the relationship between those two things, and I guess more specifically what your entry point into working in the arts or just into the arts in general was, um, did it come through writing? Was it through visual art or were those things sort of developed in tandem? What was the origin of that? For you? That's a good question. So uh, really the the art making came first and you know I was one of those kids who was always making something. Uh, I grew up in a family of seamstresses and generally speaking like people who use their hands a lot, a lot of like DIY stuff. So that was always around me in my family growing up but you know I come from a, a pink collar and a blue collar family so you know like a a path into the professional arts was never something that was very clearly visible for me. And so, you know, I had this childhood where I I took art classes, like I wasn't allowed to sit around the house in the summer. I was one of those kids who was sent to the community center, you know, like pick a class because you have to do something. I went to a high school, luckily that in in hindsight, actually had a really robust arts program and uh, ceramics, a dark room, things like that. Uh, And then when I went to college, I made art uh, painting classes, ceramics classes, drawing classes, all through my undergraduate uh, career, I guess you could call it. But because it wasn't really visible to me how one would live a life as an artist, I majored in English because everybody knows that that's far more lucrative. <laughs> I was <laughs> yeah. going to say, you, you kind of took a sidestep there. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, well, I was just on a path to make money, honestly. So English it was. I knew it. <laughs> um, I graduated with an undergraduate degree in literature and then was like, oh, wait a minute. There's no real clear path for this either, you know, in terms of like making a career, making a living. So I went back to school and I got my master's degree in linguistics, which somehow at the time, I mean, I was really young. It seemed really like, oh, that's more sciencey. So probably I can get a job with that was, I think, sort of the vague thinking around this. And then when I finished that, I did get a job teaching English. It's funny because I was in this weird place where I was like, okay, what's next? What, what does this like career trajectory look like? You know, what should I be doing? And I started to think about whether I should apply for the PhD in linguistics and keep going forward. And the application deadline, I was like looking at programs, the application deadlines were getting closer and closer. And I was just getting more and more anxious about applying. And I just had this moment where the the whole time since I had left the master's program in linguistics, I was like, you know, sewing and painting and drawing in my sketchbook. And I just had this moment where I was like, I know what I should be doing. I'm already doing it. And that was sort of this Mm -hmm. moment where I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, God, I'm an artist. Um, And that, (laughs) that, you know, and it was sort of like kind of a good thing and a bad thing. It was this I have a teacher who would Mm -hmm. who would call it like an oh shit moment, like, oh shit, I'm an artist. <laughs> shit. <laughs> it really does come with that, like, 
oh, why is there a pit in my stomach? I feel good, bad about this. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But at least, but at least I had clarity in that moment, right? Where, you know, finally I was like, you know, I'm not, I don't want a PhD. I actually, linguistics is fun, but maybe it's, it's not what's in my heart. Like I'm already doing what I need to be doing. So that was, that was pretty great. And then from there, I kept teaching English. Um, I actually really enjoyed teaching a lot and I was teaching English to um, at-risk teenagers, which is super fun. And I had this life where, you know, for about 10 years, I would work in the studio all morning and afternoon. And then I would go and teach in the like late afternoon and evening. And I was, you know, hand dyeing and painting and printing all my own fabrics for these like weird quilts and installations and sculptures. And, and then I had this moment where I kind of was, I felt like I was mired in a craft conversation and I wasn't getting out of it what I really wanted or needed. And I was a little bit frustrated. And I had this great studio visit with Namita Gupta Wiggers, who at the time was the director and chief curator of the Museum of Contemporary Craft um, in Portland. And this conversation was like everything I wanted and was so energizing and so stimulating. And I was like, she was leaving my studio. She was literally walking down the front steps of my house. And I was like, this was so fantastic. How do I get more of this? And she just sort of <laughs> tossed over her shoulder, go get your MFA. <laughs> and so I did. And that was how I ended up going back to school again mm-hmm. to, to try and figure out like what parts of the conversation I was more interested in having both in the studio and outside of the studio. So that's that's how that happened. <laughs> I should say I should say that like nothing in my life has turned out the way I thought it would, but in fact has turned out way better than I could have imagined. So, and then from there, you know, same kind of thing like I was applying to MFA programs and um and I really because I hadn't gone to art school for undergrad, I really I didn't know how competitive my application would be. And so to mm-hmm. try and get a sense of that, um, I went down to San Francisco and I went to the grad portfolio day at the California College of the Arts. And I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but you know, it's like schools, like, yeah. <laughs> like three to five representatives from a school, they sit at these tables and you stand in a line and you like, you give somebody your portfolio and you give them their little spiel. Yeah, I used to work in college admissions um, at the undergraduate level, so not um, reviewing potential or prospective graduate students' work, which I imagine is a much different conversation, but I used to work at a lot of the portfolio days reviewing um, high school students' portfolios for prospective art students. So very, very familiar with those portfolio day events. Yeah, they're, they're pretty funny, right? Like they're a whole bunch of people like standing around awkwardly trying to figure out like what to say and what to do and then maybe six seven minutes that you get to talk to somebody oh they can be very intensive and i imagine for um yeah i'm curious to hear what your experience was because for someone who's you know coming in and trying to decipher maybe like where their work fits or what types of programs they might be competitive for i can imagine that um even just those events themselves can be very like high pressure situations and a little overwhelming so yeah i'd love to to hear more about what you felt in that moment yeah well it was it was a little bit overwhelming i mean i'd never been to san francisco um and i you know i was like i i still don't really know where all of this is going you know, even though I had a, an established studio practice and actually was getting my work out into the world, the whole point was to sort of like reshape the conversation and I, I didn't know where that would lead. But I 
I talked to, you know, representatives of different schools. And then I was, I found myself across, sitting across from uh, the late, great Ted Purvis from CCA. And, um, you know, he's, he's flipping through my portfolio. He's looking at my weird quilts. And, I mean, I'm giving him my little spiel. And he goes, he goes, hold on, hold on. And he looks down the table and he goes, Deb, hey, Deb, Deb, take, take this one next. And he points at me. And I'm like, uh-oh, like what, what's happening? Is this, is this man rejecting me? Like what, you know what I mean? Like I just had no, yeah, what's no, going on? no context for this. And so I wait for this woman to be finished with the person that's sitting in front of her. And then I take the chair and I hand her my portfolio and I start to give her my awkward spiel all over again. And she flips through a couple pages and she looks up at me and she goes, you should totally fucking come here. And I was like, oh, I was like, what? Okay, I didn't expect anybody to be foul-mouthed, for starters. <laughs> but, so that really threw me. But also, like, I think that was the first moment where I really felt, like, as an artist, that what I wanted, wanted me back. And I was like, mm. oh, God. Mm. there There is, like, a moment where you feel like you're actually really connected to something. And it, it, it wants you to be there, right? So I did, I ended up going to CCA, I applied and because Deb, Deb, as it turns out, was Deborah Voloma, the chair of the textiles department. Um, ah, and yes. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I applied and I ended up getting a, a full scholarship. So, oh, you know, wow. even, even the questions Amazing. that were around like, well, where is this going? Parentheses, how do I afford it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, had a, had a kind of clear, clear answer for me. Yeah. It's so amazing to hear how those uh, seemingly small experiences can really just change the trajectory of your life. I mean, just a conversation or studio visit that you have uh, being a sign that, you know, in order to get more of this, I should kind of like align myself with this community of people or, you know, I should be moving closer in this direction. And then to just have a really pivotal conversation with a professor or somebody that can just help to signal that you're going down the right path or that, you know, you, you are where you're meant to be. And so I, I do love hearing about those stories because I think that um, sometimes it can be just like a single conversation that really changes where you're headed. Totally, totally. And I mean, I had other conversations when I was in the process of trying to figure out like even where to apply that were the opposite of that, that, were, that very much felt like big no's. But, you know, it's the, it's the yeses mm-hmm. that really stand out, you know. And, and, you know, I think too, like, as artists, it's important to like let the yes in, in a way, you know, and and kind of like feel comfortable with the acknowledgement of that, you know, like the acknowledgement of the work that you've already put in or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really interested to hear more about your experience in graduate school because it also aligns with this kind of a shift in your um your, your life trajectory in a sense, like going from having this background in writing to kind of embracing this new path within the visual arts world. And so I'm, yeah, just interested to hear more about what that experience was like. Did it sort of meet your expectations? Like what kind of other pivotal moments did you have? Or like what kind of growth did you see during that time? And how did it start to shape your ideas for maybe what you saw next for yourself? Yeah, I I think in some ways I may have had an atypical experience. I mean, partly because of the funding that took a lot of of other kinds of pressures off of me, Mm -hmm. but also because I had been to graduate school before 
And so I knew exactly how self-directed I needed to be. Whereas I think if I had gone, like if I hadn't had that first experience in linguistics and I had gone and just gotten my MFA, I think I would have shaped my time very differently. But because I knew how much of the work had to be led by me, I was able to be very, very focused and intentional, I think, about it. I mean, you'd have to check with my professors and see if they corroborate that. (laughs) But I felt very focused and intentional. And, you know, I was really very much trying to get out of it as much as I could because I knew that the two years was going to go really, really quickly. So I had, you know, like, I was in my studio generally five or six days a week. I was there usually by like 8.30. I mean, that was also because I was taking two buses to get there. And the bus is so much less crowded if you if you go before rush hour. Like, I'll totally admit that. But, mm. um, but you know, I tried to be really, really um, rigorous and consistent with what I was doing. And, and I ended up making a lot of work, most of which, you know, is packed up in boxes and I don't really need to see again. But it was important for me to cycle through it, right? And just, like, make it, see what it was, you know, accept it or reject it on whatever criteria I was using at the time and then move into the next thing, like let it inform the next project. Um, so I had a marvelous time in graduate school. Um, you know, not that I didn't like bitch about professors and assignments like everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what was the role of writing in your work at this time? If any, were you really kind of focused on the visual art aspect of your work while you were in graduate school? Were you continuing to write at all during this time? Yeah, uh, I was writing kind of off and on. So the writing is something that kind of appears in my life and then like disappears or goes into the background for a little while and then then comes forward again. So let's see, I started writing right before I went to grad school and then sort of switched my focus until I was I think comfortable and felt like things were like, you know, flowing and I was settled in San Francisco. And then I started writing again, um, doing some like interviews and some, some short reviews. And then most of the writing that I was doing though, was really like class focused, you know, like reading responses and things like that. So, so in school, the published writing was taking a backseat to some of the, because the CCA also requires a a written thesis. So you spend your second year doing that. And, you know, they don't require a lot, but I think because I had already been writing, I also had kind of high standards for myself where that was concerned. So, but then right after uh, I left school, I started writing a lot more again. I'm always so fascinated hearing, oh, sorry, I keep hitting my cord. Um, (laughs) I'm always so fascinating hearing how other artists working in multiple disciplines kind of flow between those states because I think it can be easy to I don't know and maybe I'm projecting but like get in your head about one form of art making versus another where it's like oh I'm a writer I should just be writing or I'm a a fiber artist I should be focusing on fiber art or oh I'm a photographer I should be focusing on this and like allowing your brain to kind of uh, creatively flow between those and I don't know maybe I'm thinking about the sort of imposter syndrome that an artist gets as they're like taking on a new method of art making and sort of how you 
sort of find acceptance within that where it's like, no, 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 I belong here and I should be making this art and like my perspective as a photographer, as a videographer, as a fiber artist, as a writer is like equally valid across the board. Um, I don't know that that's a question, but more of like <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> no, no, I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I have a little bit of the opposite where like whatever it is that I'm doing, I feel like I should be doing the other thing. So when I'm, mm. when I'm in the studio, I feel like I should be writing. When I'm writing, I'm like, oh my God, you're going to get so behind in the studio, you know? And, um, I, but that's I do. relatable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I hear you because I had the, when I started to move into photography a couple of years ago, I was like what am I doing? Like, even though I had done photo before, you know, as a teenager even, but you know, it was that this kind of, um, moment where I was like, how do I like inhabit this or own it? How do I get comfortable with it for myself? You know? So I totally hear what you're saying. Cause there, there's, I mean, there's always, there's always some voice right in your head saying something that's mm-hmm. meant to, meant to distract you, uh, or make you question or doubt the thing that you actually should be just doing, just ignoring it and doing, right? Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. That reminds me, I've, I've been doing this, like, meditation app, and at the end of a meditation, it'll have, like, a little quote, and one of them was, like, or the one for today, it was, like, if you're stuck in an inner monologue or you're stuck in these thoughts, it's just pulling you away from the present moment. And I feel like I relate to that so much, in the practice where, you know, if I'm sitting and working on a sewing project in my head, I'm like, don't forget to edit the podcast. Don't forget to edit the podcast. Don't forget to edit the podcast. You have emails to respond to. You should do those now. But wait, you're sewing. Don't distract yourself. But wait, those emails. And it's just a constant dance of, I don't know, trying to keep your brain focused on what you're doing and just let yourself fall into it and really just create. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the thing that I always think about is like, you're always saying yes to something. So what is it that you're saying yes to? Like without even thinking about it, what are you saying yes to? Are you saying yes to those voices that are like, mm-hmm. you're not doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. You should be doing something else right now. Or, mm-hmm. or are you saying yes to the thing that's like right in front of you? Mm. Yeah, this is like art therapy. I know. <laughs> How did we get here? <laughs> I am interested to hear about, you mentioned uh, starting to do a lot more writing after graduate school, and we, we had just had a conversation with another artist who talked about um, her, her own decision to go to graduate school, and she was really thinking of it in terms of the kinds of, uh, as being a kind of necessary step in her career and the kinds of opportunities that w- it would unlock. And so I guess I'm wondering, um, for you, if you had... Uh, what, how you were thinking about that D- during your time in graduate school, if you were like, did you have hopes or plans to return to teaching? Were you seeing this as kind of a career pivot as well as focusing on your visual art practice and um, just how you were thinking about like what, what the next steps would be if graduate school helped to provide some of that clarity or if that was sort of just, yeah, what those, I guess, um, first few years like after graduate school looked like. Um, now that you'd had this experience of getting your MFA? Yeah. um, Well, remember how I said that nothing turned out like I thought it would turn out? Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, the the, the years after graduate school were like that too. Um, So the original plan was like two years in San Francisco, and then I would come back to Portland. 
And I didn't end up doing that because I got a year-long fellowship at Headlands. They do a they do a graduate fellowship oh, where okay. they um, they take one person from the graduating MFA class from the what is it seven MFA granting institutions in the Bay Area. Um, so I was the person from CCA, and you know, and it's, that's not something you say no to. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm staying in San Francisco. And then once I was there, you know, you, the great thing about graduate school is that you meet a lot of people um, and you, you can build a network really, really quickly. And because I stayed, then I started getting work. Um, so I started getting writing work, editing work, as, as well as like art, visual art related work. And, you know, it was one of those things where then it felt like if I came back to Portland, like I would lose that network. And also I had been away from mm-hmm. Portland for then three years and then four years. And it was like my my network in Portland had gotten smaller. So, you know, there was sort of this this moment where I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Where should I be? And I was like, well, you know, for now I'm going to stay where the work is. But at the time I was also applying for, you know, a lot of opportunities, one of them being a Fulbright fellowship. And then in uh, 2015, uh, on my third application, I got it. Um, and so I ended up going to Warsaw, Poland. Um, and I actually got a second Fulbright, like, like back to back with that. So I stayed for two years. Oh, amazing. Um, and that, yeah. that was really great. But then I had been out of San Francisco for two years mm. and that mm. network had di- diminished. Right. So then mm. I'm like, when I got back to San Francisco, that was a real decision moment where I was like, okay, do I stay here and rebuild my network? Or mm-hmm. is this a moment actually of freedom where I can, you know, go wherever I want to? And I ended up coming back to Portland just because it, you know, it's a lot cheaper here. Um, and I thought, well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to have to rebuild a network anyway, maybe I should rebuild my network in a place that's a little bit more sustainable for me to live. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can for sure relate to that. Um, I live in San Francisco currently and had kind of made an opposite move from Baltimore where that's actually where Amanda and I met in art school and we'd done our undergrad together. And so felt like I really had this network and community from being in Baltimore for so many years and both, you know, attending and then later working at the art school that we went to. And so there is just this creative community that I think that's something that I really did underestimate in moving out to the West Coast, how long it would take to just rebuild and reestablish. But it, it does come at a, a price as far as uh, the affordability and finding space. So I, I definitely know what you mean. But do you feel like I'm wondering if there were or I guess like to what extent do you feel like you were able to maintain ties with the community in San Francisco or because you had been abroad for a number of years and then moved to Portland shortly thereafter? um, Did you were you still finding opportunities within the Bay Area or did you feel like um, it was really kind of starting over locally and, you know, a lot of the the opportunities that you were finding were then based around Portland. Um, I'm just curious, like in what ways that network either stays with you or, you know, is sort of centered around where you live. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of both. So I think, I think in terms of like the, the network that was really specific to, um, to school really diminished. And I think that's just a, a matter of, you know, the, the churn of graduate school 
professors and administrators and to a certain extent like school related or connected uh, curators you know they like they're they're focused on whoever's in front of them so and they've got a new crop of people every year cycling in and out right Mm -hmm. so so their focus is like it's it is really I think in a way like geographically specific but I did it did keep quite a few ties to the Bay Area and continue to have ties in fact it, strangely, some people don't seem to know that I've left, even though it's five years later. Um, oh. And I, I, I still get <laughs> it's kind like, of nice. Yeah, I mean, it's your nice. spirit is here. <laughs> it's a little weird to like get, you know, a communique from, uh, say, an arts institution, and they're like, "We're having this show. Do you want to come to the press preview or something?" And I'm like, "I don't. I don't live there anymore. I haven't lived there in years." Like, <laughs> so yeah, um, I think. You know, the thing that I had kind of underestimated in some ways was the idea of being in a cohort. So when I went to San Francisco, I was in my cohort at school, and school gives you a really rapid community and network. And then when I was in Poland on the Fulbright, you know, I was part of a, of a, of a fellowship cohort. So I had both the connections that I had made in Warsaw, like professional connections, but then I also had the the group of Americans and then their connections as well. And then when I got back to Portland, so I got back here late 2018 and I basically just like went on a couple of residencies. So effectively 2019. So I was here for just over a year before the pandemic hit. And I I underestimated, I think, how long it was gonna take to feel like I had a sense of community again. And the pandemic obviously did not help that one little bit. Uh, so I feel like I'm in Portland. I'm still building a community for myself. Mm-hmm. I don't remember where I had heard it, but there was some, maybe on a podcast or something, a conversation around moving. And it was like gr- agreed around everyone in the conversation that it takes at least like two years to really kind of settle into a new place. And that's like outside of pandemic rules where you don't have access to open spaces where you can connect and meet people and like there aren't events going on really so it's like it sets you even further on the the slow connect into the city again yeah totally and I would say two years is for people who have uh jobs where they like go go to a an institution or a facility or an office and there are other human beings that <laughs> they're social contact with, right? Right, because I'm a, I'm a full-time freelancer. And so, you know, my, my job is at my desk in a room in my house, you know, so that, that makes it even yeah. harder to like make these kinds of connections because you're just not, you're not in a room with other people. And so it slows everything way, way down. Yeah, maybe it's more like five years for people that work for themselves (laughs) or work from home or, you know, are freelancing where you're not in any kind of shared space. You don't have coworkers. You're not like immediately tapped into friends or at least people you can share grief with. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, I know we had talked about this or touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'm always very curious about other folks whose art kind of falls into the art and craft category. There is <laughs> quite an exhausting debate around art and craft. And I don't even know that it's a debate, but like everyone's got an opinion on what qualifies and what they're willing to consider. And I think you touched on it a little bit regarding like finding the right institution to pursue your MFA, like a place where your work would really be 
appreciated and guided in the direction you cared it cared for it to go to. But also just like as a linguist, you understand language and, and how and why we talk about things. So I'm curious what what you think about art versus craft or art and craft. I feel like I have a really different position now than I did back then, back in 2009. And I think partly that is because my work tends to be really hybrid and I don't tend to fit neatly into one group or another. So even back when I was making these quilts and these uh, installations, like the, the quilts, like the quilt people didn't know what to do with me. You know, I'm making, mm-hmm. I'm making quilts where I take a big piece of fabric and I go out and print the side of a building and then I dye it and I paint it or um, an installation where I print a series of cars and, you know, again, like bleach and dye the fabric, manipulate it and then hanging it in, in this space. So like they're like, you don't fit over here with us like traditional folk. And then the contemporary art people at the time were like, I don't get it. What like why quilts? What are you doing? And now I feel like the there has been this kind of rapid expansion within the contemporary art world where, you know, pretty much as long as you can make a an analytical or theoretical case for what you're doing, particularly around the materiality of it, you can kind of bring whatever you want into contemporary craft. And I think that there are some very particular scholars who have had uh, a really profound effect on the way that we think about textiles in particular. Um, I'm thinking about Alyssa Author and Maria Elena Buschek and even Glenn Adamson. He doesn't talk specifically about textiles, I think, but he does talk a lot about in his books about, you know, where where the hard edges of craft end sort of in a sort of definitional sense and where where what craft is and can be kind of bleeds out or either bleeds out into contemporary art or is absorbed by the contemporary art world. Because of course, like you have to have a kind of footnote or a side conversation about the marketplace, right? Because what contemporary art accepts or adopts has a lot to do with how much and, and in what ways people can make money, right? So there, there always has to be, I think, when you talk about any kind of discipline or medium or you know category in when when we talk about these things like you have to kind of consider like what the churn of capitalism is either making possible or making not possible so Mm -hmm. I mean I you know that's that's a that's a whole series of podcasts in and of itself right yeah (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh boy, where do we even start? Yeah, no, let's just put a pin in that right there. (laughs) (laughs) I do appreciate you bringing it up, though, because I think in a way, like, that's that's sort of, I I definitely think it relates to even, like, the conversations that we wanted to have for the podcast, is just, like, what is the crux of, like, where, you know, where visual artists' work, like, really collides with these needs to like survive sustain a practice and you know this is all because of the pressures of this capitalistic society that we live in and so i think you know to 
whatever degree you have to navigate or think about that as you know an, an artist um, based on your own personal circumstances based on like whatever communities you're a part of there's so many layers and angles to this but I think uh, it's definitely for us connected to you know why we wanted to have these conversations to some transparency to what is otherwise a very kind of like mysterious opaque industry and I think it's something that, you know, everyone has to contend with and whether or not it informs the kind of work you're making or like, you know, to however that impacts the way you're thinking about your work in a studio, if at all, I think it's something that we have to navigate as humans trying to make our way in the world. And so, yes, definitely uh, very related to what we're doing here and why we're having these conversations. So... Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning that. Well, right, because these things, they, they feed our sense of self in the world, right? Uh, the sense of what you're doing in the studio. I think they, sometimes without even being very explicit, they inform the ways in which we consider what, like, what is success and what, what is failure, what, who's mm -hmm. a real artist and who's like... N not or a hobbyist or whatever you know and there's a lot of I think just uh like 10 minutes ago we were just like had a had a footnote about imposter syndrome right like you know mm -hmm. like who who gets to be a real artist is if you if you make work but you're not in any exhibitions or you're not selling it or you're not represented by a gallery are you a capital R real, capital A artist? You know, this is, and it's funny because I just I had a friend who is um, teaching a professional, professional practices class, and he was going to have to be on an airplane for his very first class of the semester. So he said, will you take my class? And I thought, okay, and I love to teach. So of course I said, yes. You know, the way that I wanted to start it off was I just asked the students listen, for the next, whatever, five, seven minutes, as fast as you can, I just want you to write down all of the questions that you have about professional practices. Just whatever. Mm -hmm. And somebody said, well, I don't even know what professional practice is. And I was like, that's a question, write it down, right? <laughs> and, and there were a lot of questions about like, you know, how do, I, how do I be a real artist in the world? How do I figure out how to follow my own path, but in light of everything else that's happening in the world, because it's this, it's this balance, right? It's like, you have to be aware of what these um, conditions and strictures are at the same time that you're like making decisions about like, is that important to me or not important? Do I pay attention to it or not pay attention to it? Do I do I give it weight? And of course, there's different answers at different moments of your life. Like what, what I cared about in some ways in, in being a quote unquote professional artist 15 years ago is not what I care about now. These things shift over time because mm -hmm. I'm a different person, right? So I have a different perspective. And, and you, I mean, do you feel the same way? Like, do you care yes. about, about different things than you did like a decade ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, even just on the most basic level, like Nicole and I have talked about how needing to consider our physical bodies as part of our practice, or it's like, I used to be, and I still am to an extent, but I used to be very reckless with my posture, with the way that I would work and think like, I'm always going to feel fine when I'm drawing, even though I'm like folding my body into this way that it's not meant to be folded. And then 
now as I'm getting older, I'm like, oh, right. It really hurts when I sit in one position for many hours with bad posture. And it's, you know, I, I'm not wearing my glasses right now. And I'm going to feel that a little bit later. <laughs> but there are these things that like, I was never considering that early on. And, you know, that's just one thing. But there's so much of our practices that force us to kind of, or just life experiences that make us change our priorities and our values and what we care about and what we want our practice to look like, the impact we want it to have. Um, or even if our practice, like for some of us, the question is like, do I want to keep making visual art? Is that something that's important to me? And it's it's so highly personalized, the answer. And I think that tends to be the case a lot of times with art stuff where it's like, am I a capital A artist? If I think I am, then I am. But if I base it off of someone else's values of what a capital A artist is, then maybe I'm not. But I have to answer to myself at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. There's something so earnest about that question. Just, you know, how, how do I be a real artist out in the world? Because um, I think there's, you know, in a practical sense, there's all these questions like how do I how do I make a living? How am I going to, you know, dedicate time to being in the studio? How am I going to pay my bills or take care of my family or you know there's sort of these like the logistics of running a studio practice in a way that is sustainable but then on top of that which I think this question is speaking even more to is just how do I like how do I make these assessments and decisions for myself how do I determine what my work is worth or how I'm valuing my work or my time and I think this is somewhat unique to the arts and that you know our our work, our professional life is so tied up in our personal identities and in the way that we value ourselves and each other. And so it feels like a loaded question in that it is so much more complicated, I think, than just kind of figuring out the nuts and bolts of how am I going to, how am I going to make a living as an artist? I think there's just so much more to that that has to do with like unpacking the internal belief system around our work and so yeah, I, I, I just really, um, I guess, empathize with, with those questions that I'm curious, like, yeah, what, what else uh, came up or were there any other takeaways from the class that stood out to you? I mean, one of the things that was, there, I mean, there were a lot of great questions. This, this list of questions that they came up with, they were really great. And they were, they were about what you would expect, you know, like, do, do I have to kiss ass? Do I have to, um, <laughs> do I have to have a job or a plan lined up if I move to another city? You know, there were a bunch of really nuts and bolts questions about like, do I have to write my own statements or someone, can someone write them for me? Uh, you know, do I have to have a website? Um, how, how should I format my CV? You know, uh, like some real, those were, those were grounders. Those were no problem <laughs> to answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. You should have a CV. Um, you know, and here's, here's where you can go to look at a, an example of how it should be formatted. But, you know, the other questions, they are really, I think, they're questions that a person can only answer for themselves, right? Like, yeah, a little bit existential. I mean, it really is, you know, like, I can't tell you how to be a real artist, because I don't, I know what that means to me, but I don't know what it means to you. I don't know what I think you said in, like internal, internal decisions that you need to make, or um, I don't know what narratives 
you've been told or that you've been paying attention to or that you need you mm-hmm. feel, that you need to feel like you need to push back against. So I just I mean, I just tried to be honest with them. I was like, you have me for two and a half hours so you can ask me whatever you want. Um, and I just ended up answering their questions as as truthfully as I could. But I kept saying, like, take this with a grain of salt, because th- I'm telling you what answer worked for me and worked now like maybe it wouldn't have worked five years ago and I in in another year I may abandon this completely one of the things that that did come up was like the the idea that you have to have like a successful artist or a real artist makes all of their income off of their artwork and I and I said listen you know from my perspective it has given me great freedom in the studio to earn my money elsewhere And luckily for Mm -hmm. me, elsewhere happens to be art related. It's adjacent, but, you know, it has always given me a a great sense of liberty that I can make what I want, when I want, how I want, um, because I don't need to conform to someone else's standards, including the standards that might be presented to me through a gallery or a dealer who says, listen, I can, I've sold the last 10, so please just make it like that for the next, you know, 150. Because that, Mm -hmm. to me, that's really boring. I know other people who do that. They they do it very well. They achieve a lot of um, financial success through it, and it doesn't bother them. And that's great. That's awesome. If that works for you, by all means. But I know that it wouldn't work for me. So, you know, I do all the other things that I do. I write, I edit, I teach, I coach. I get grants, you know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. I hustle and cobble mm-hmm. it together because that, that is the thing. That's the place where I find freedom. You know, that's, that's the, that's the way that my life has made the most sense to me, you know, but I can't, I can't look at an MFA student and say, you should do it like I did it. And I guarantee you'll be happy. <laughs> that's, I can't do that. Yeah. I think that kind of recognition of how individualized every artist's life and career is and also how integrated all aspects of our life are with our work is something that has definitely just been more and more reinforced for us I think since we've been doing the podcast which is now five or six years in and I I do think one of the things that has changed is when we started we thought it was going to be much more nuts and bolts like you know we want to kind of peel back the curtain and hear from artists about how they're putting the pieces together but it really has become and I do think especially in the wake of the pandemic like much more holistic conversations just around the totality of artist life and you Mm -hmm. know not only the practical but like emotionally and mentally and physically like Amanda said how how we're supporting and sustaining our work and just um, I think within the arts like all of those things are so much more interconnected than you know than than most industries where you can kind of clock in or clock out or you have some kind of separation but you know artists work tend to be much more kind of nebulous in the way our things fit together so yeah it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about this I was just gonna say you know and it's all so subject to change like I I may have changed my mind on half a dozen points that I just made by the time this podcast gets aired do you know what I mean like who who knows who Mm -hmm. knows what the morrow will bring you know like Mm -hmm. um and I think too like we're living in a time where that at least for me that feeling of change is it just gets like more and more accelerated Mm mm-hmm 
yeah, we often say these podcast recordings feel like time capsules because even like Nicole and I are able to check in with the podcast pretty regularly and like update our listeners and update each other on our thoughts and takeaways and what we're learning in our, our art practices and lives. But like even stuff that we recorded a couple months ago, I'm like, man, I'm kind of thinking about things a little bit differently now. <laughs> or like, I don't know if I feel that way anymore. And I think giving ourselves that flexibility to to just keep changing and just keep growing because I don't know I don't want to stay the same I hope I'm always going to keep growing and, and changing and adapting and I think especially as I continue to get older like I always want to keep learning more and like there's just so much there's so much that I don't know and there will always be more that I don't know than I do know but I'd like to try to know as much as I can yeah I don't I don't know that we have a choice about like growing and adapting I think I think that's just and I luckily I mean the good news right is that we're artists and we're creative so we we and we make those kinds of decisions like in and out of the studio all the time you know so there's like these um I think artists are actually really really some of the most adaptable people because they are constantly making like little little micro shifts, right? Artists are in transition. They 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 live in that. Oh God, I'm going to use the word liminal. I hate that word, <laughs> but they they live in that liminal space, right? And so yeah. and so they are. You know, it reminds me of um, boxers. You know how like when you're when you're boxing, you're not supposed to like stay on your feet. You're not supposed to uh, like rest your weight in mm. both feet equally and then just like mm. stay there. You, like if you watch boxers, they, they do this little dance. They're moving their feet, they're shuffling. They're moving from like the ball of their foot. They're shifting their weight. And it's so that if they get punched, they take a blow, they don't go flying. If you've, if you've planted your feet and you get hit, you get knocked over. But if, if, you, are, if you are already in motion, right, then you can take a, a punch and you might go a little bit sideways or back or something like that, right? You'll feel it, but you don't get knocked over. And I think I think artists are like that, just sort of culturally. And we take a lot of hits, so. We take a lot of hits. <laughs> <laughs> it tracks. Yeah. <laughs> totally. We've been we've been talking about this the whole time, but uh, as as a practicing artist, how are or what are your thoughts on maintaining your own practice and kind of how are you considering making it sustainable for for yourself or your your lifetime um yeah I mean uh like you I've been paying a lot more attention to my body in recent years uh I you know I used to be able to like crawl around on the floor uh you know dealing with a really big piece of fabric you know for hours and hours I can't do that anymore or like when I was in Warsaw, I was asked to make new work for a show there. And I didn't have a studio while I was there, so I made this work on my kitchen table. And, you know, like, leaning over for, mm-hmm. you know, two, three, four hours at a time. Back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like an old person, like, oh, my back. Doing those kinds of things, paying more attention to those kinds of things. But I think the thing, there's so many things that make my practice possible um but a lot of them it's funny are don't have to do directly with the studio work in some ways like you know like meditation <laughs> meditation is really helpful um i think it you know there there is no direct line 
between because I've been meditating pretty much consistently since I would say 2007 maybe and uh you know I can't I can't show you a, a really direct correlation between my meditation practice and the energy that I have for my studio practice but I know it's there Mm-hmm. regular exercise. It's very good for your mental health. I think everybody in the pandemic has has finally figured this out. Like you have to move your body, you have to do something, you know. But I think too a lot of what feeds my studio practice is being in conversation with people and being in community with people. Particularly the kind of conversations where you can go to a loving and trusted friend and be like, "I just need to tell you about why the art world is so terrible and I hate it so much. And you just, you just cough it all up, right? You just get it Mm -hmm. out. And then, and then you go, okay, thank you. I feel better. I'm glad we talked. (laughs) I I'm ready to get back to work. (laughs) I have, I have some artist friends and some writer friends who, you know, we we can be very honest with each other about what's going on, you know, behind the scenes in, in different moments. And then, and then say like, okay, you know, shake it off. I'm, I'm ready to just work again. So there's, there's a lot of stuff like that, that, that really like supports and feeds my studio practice. Yeah. There's a real art in developing a, a lifestyle practice that supports your art practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we've asked about this a couple different ways, but I am curious to hear how you're currently balancing between your visual art practice and your work as a writer. And I'm trying to think back to, I know we've had one or two conversations on the podcast with artists who are also writers and maintain kind of active work in both arenas. And so I'm always interested to hear in, like, again, artists that are kind of straddling these different worlds. And um, you've written for some of the most notable arts publications like Art Forum, Art in America, Freeze. And I'm curious about your experience working as a writer and then also kind of maybe just balancing or like navigating your, your work as a working artist with your um, work as an arts writer. Yeah, um, the arts writing tends to be a kind of service practice. Um, and I don't know how many people out there really know this, but art critics don't, they don't get paid. Like, um, uh, just to give an example, uh, you know, a 150 word review, you know, might be maybe 50 or $75. Mm-hmm. A, a longer review that's maybe like 1200 words might be, if you're lucky, it's like a few hundred dollars. And that, you know, that's the, the time going to the exhibition, seeing the work, taking the notes, going home, typing it up, doing, you know, a a really rough first draft, a second draft. I do a third or fourth draft before I send it to an editor. I know some people who are a little less precious about Mm -hmm. it. They probably, per hour, they probably make more money. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But you might, you might have as many as like three or four rounds of editing. um, And then you may also have some related paperwork that you need to do um, to Mm -hmm. get paid. Oh, yes. And then on Mm -hmm. top of that, a lot of publications are net 90, which means that you won't get your check <laughs> for 90 days after Jesus. the date of publication. So, you know, you, you write something and say December, it gets edited in January, oh it goes God. to print in March, you're not getting paid till like, you know, it, it, it oh gets published in April, you're not getting paid till like midsummer. 
It's like a wow. six-month turnaround for pennies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, please, I need these. Yeah, so I have, I have a real, um, and I think most critics do, they have a real, I wouldn't say love-hate, but love-dislike relationship with the, where the space of looking at someone else's work and trying to find words to shape around it sort of collides with slash overlaps with like the, the nuts and bolts realities of what it means to be a writer and put that work out into the world um, th- through a publication. Yeah. But I think too, like just in terms of where my art practice kind of does or does not come into conversation with my writing practice, like the way that I consider it right now, the way that it sort of makes sense to me is that language is a, is a fence. If, and that, that like from a linguistic perspective, like if I say the word dog, I am at the same time in a way saying not cat, not goat, not horse. So there's a kind of, uh, language has a way of really delineating things to a, a greater or lesser degree. So I feel like when I'm, when I'm writing, in some ways, I am foreclosing possibilities, right? I'm, I am constricting. Hmm. And then when I'm in the studio and I'm making visual work, I feel like that's the gate. Like, that's the opening. That's where these, these constrictions disappear. Because I, I can make whatever I want. L- language has its, you know, it has uh, grammar and syntax and these conventions, and particularly around art writing, right? There are a lot of conventions around art, art writing. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe that's why nobody reads it. But, um, but you know, like, uh, but in the studio, I feel like I just have much more liberty. So that's, that's where those, those kind of, like, come into play for me. You know, it's like, is this a moment where I need to have some structure um, in a very particular way? Or is this a moment where I need to feel like all possibilities are open and it's my, I can just sort of flow through them? So if, does that make sense? I never, I never know exactly, like, yeah. how clear... <laughs> I'm just like riveted by your description. (laughs) Well, you know, it's like maybe because there are so many um, constraints around art writing, uh, you know, it it does tend to feel, I mean, sometimes at its worst, it can feel formulaic, particularly when you're writing to uh, a, you know, a a particular form, but also in a, in a really um, compressed uh, word count, you know, like you can't do that much with 250 words you know with 2,000 words you can do a lot more in terms of of even just within a structure like creating a new structure and you know I've had I've had opportunities to write for say exhibition catalogs and that's that's a place where you can actually get if you know considering that the the institution might be amenable to this but you can get into more experimentation and you can have Mm -hmm. a little bit more of that um that sense of creating something that might end up being greater than the sum of its parts Whereas I never really feel like that about an exhibition review. Like, you know, God willing, I might be able to turn out some kind of like really juicy phrase or something, but that's about as far as it's going to go. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to blow anybody's mind in an exhibition review, you know, just because the, the format doesn't allow for it. Right. That's, and that's not, that's maybe not what we're looking for in an exhibition review. Maybe we're just looking for a kind of historicization of this moment in the artist's practice. So it's, it's really in some ways it's formulaic, but maybe that's a good thing because then it's less about me and it can really be focused on the artist. I'm, I'm figuring this out in real time as we're talking, by the way. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah, it really is fascinating to hear you talk about these different aspects of your work because I think, you know, we've heard from different artists about how like different disciplines maybe within their practice also kind of provide them with different things or I just thought the the way you kind of described your writing and visual arts practice as a kind of like gate versus fence and that analogy really resonates and makes a lot of sense that you're you're kind of like approaching each work each type of work with a different like like set of questions or conditions or maybe it's like offering you something different and so um, I find that really interesting and relatable not as a as a writer but just even as an artist that's working in different disciplines and so yeah I think the way that you put that is really uh, really well put yeah and maybe it's that like the to 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 like lean into your question maybe it's that the questions in writing are more externally generated and the questions in my visual practice are internally generated mm-hmm yeah, it's like you're setting up your own conditions and your own rules in the studio as opposed to having to follow something that's been laid out for you. Yeah, completely. This is a bit of a segue, but I wanted to ask you, I guess on the topic of writing, I know that um, a few years ago you were uh, selected to receive a grant from the Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant, um, which is incredible, uh, first of all. So congratulations. Thank you. And you produced a report on how visual artists in Portland specifically were navigating the pandemic. And I'm really curious to know more about your findings from there, because um, we had had spoken with a number of artists from, you know, different places during the pandemic and about the role of place within their work or how they felt like that was how, how that shaped their experience. And I know there have been some national reports that have come out around how creative industries or artists have been impacted by the pandemic. But I'm really interested in this localized approach and how um, you were uh, talking with artists from around Portland specifically, um, what, what some of your findings were or how you felt like that was um, connected to, like similar to what we were seeing nationally versus um, really kind of specific to Portland artists. So that's kind of an open-ended question, but I, I, I saw that you had written that report and I was really interested to hear more about it. Yeah, so uh, I got this grant and I, I actually proposed something a little bit different for the grant, but the Warhol Foundation is very amenable to conditions changing. So I shifted slightly uh, from my original proposal because what I realized was that I really needed to be talking to artists before I looked at the broader impact on like institutions and galleries and things like that. And I think, you know, part of maybe what made my proposal seem feasible in the first place was the fact that, you know, Portland has built a reputation as a, as a city that is amenable to artists and, and, and is a, is a, you know, a, a really good base for creative people. And the, there was, I lived here from 1998 to 2009 before I went to graduate school um, down in San Francisco. And, you know, when I came back, it was really clear to me right away how much the city had changed and how maybe it wasn't that place anymore. You know, it wasn't the, this really, um, wasn't cheap anymore. Uh, Mm. There weren't a lot of empty spaces that were basically, you know, going for the asking or that could be borrowed for like pop-up events and things like that. There seemed to be fewer uh, DIY projects here or one-offs 
um, mm. because there was there was no time, uh, there was no funding. You know, like the a, a number of conditions had conspired to shift the ethos of the city. But interestingly, I felt that Portland itself was still banking on that old reputation, right? Like tourists were still coming here. Um, mm-hmm. People were still moving here with the expectation that they were going to find like the the DIY friendly, quirky Portland of Portlandia, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we were all mm-hmm. still going to be putting a bird on everything. And and in <laughs> fact, like there's there's plenty of birds on things here, but they're you know they are they are meant to be sold to tourists, you know. So mm-hmm. so there seemed to me to be this real big disconnect between the way that Portland had garnered this reputation in the first place and then sort of the actual day-to-day realities for artists even before the pandemic because institutions here had been closing um the Oregon College of Arts and Crafts closed you know the the art gym at Merrillhurst closed um galleries had closed so there there was this already this sense of like compression or decrease in in opportunities that were available to artists and the support for artists then okay so then the pandemic hit obviously that was going to get much much worse nobody knew how how much worse it was going to get so i released this study um it's just a google form uh and i had almost 400 responses from visual artists in portland um about their Um. you know their economic situation uh whether they had studios whether they um were able to make artwork, whether they were um, experiencing any kind of housing or food insecurity, uh, whether they were experiencing anxiety or depression. Um, and then there were sections where people could check boxes about the kinds of opportunities that they had lost because of the, the shutdowns and the pandemic. And interestingly, there were, I mean, obviously a lot of response about the kinds of opportunities that people missed and the kind of snowball effect that that had. Well, the gallery closed, so I wasn't able to have my solo show, so I didn't sell any work, so I couldn't afford my studio, you know, or so Mm -hmm. on and so forth. Or um, my mother-in-law got sick, so she moved in with us, but my studio is the spare bedroom, so I lost my studio. Or Mm -hmm. a really common one, the kids were home, so we turned my studio into their, like, schoolroom. So, so all of that was really interesting and, uh, you know, gave a really concrete sense of what was happening with artists uh, in the pandemic and continues for a lot of folks. But interestingly to me, one of the things that really came out of all of this, actually two things. The first is I did a lot of background research that fed this about how much money the arts and culture industries contribute uh, in Portland and statewide in Mm -hmm. Oregon and the Mm. the kinds of ripple effects of those, the economic functions of those industries. And then, and, and sort of like what that creates overall and also what the arts do like more generally. So uh, there are some really, there's so much information out there. And, and actually this is a question for me right now, like what I'm grappling with is like how to get this information out there in interesting and digestible ways. But there are these really great studies, there's tons of them, about how art participants uh, show greater resilience. Uh, Art participants and artists, they vote more often. They volunteer more often. They, They participate in civic life more often. Uh, you know, all of these things about 
business leaders, you know, requiring innovation and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So there's these, mm-hmm. um, actually it's, it's, it's right behind me. I can read some of them. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's like, yeah, I mean, just facts. Um, 69% of Americans believe the arts quote, lift me up beyond everyday experiences. 81% say the arts are quote, a positive experience in a troubled world. Like there, there are all these direct and residual effects about artists and art organizations being in neighborhoods and the neighborhoods forming cities where there is enhanced education, there's enhanced well-being, there are better health outcomes for people. Um, I mean, it really is like across the board, right? So then the question is, if the arts are so foundational to who we are and how we create societies and have an experience like an enhanced experience day to day why do we not support artists right yeah like like yeah yeah um why does the money not match the values (laughs) oh for real why does the money not match the values let's let's put that on (laughs) t-shirts yeah (laughs) big question here (laughs) right well so one of the things that that really puzzles me and i don't i don't have an answer here if i did i you know, change the world tomorrow. But, you know, when we, the thing that institutions and, you know, government bodies and granting organizations and things like that, like, they need to talk about outcomes. And the way to talk about outcomes is to talk about, like, what happens on the far end of things, right? Like, there, that's easy to quantify. It's easy to say this many people come to a performance or this many dollars were generated because of X, or, you know, we can say, like, for example, we can say, you know, art participants are 50% more likely to be involved in other non-arts community activities. Like, you can quantify that. But you can, so that's easy. So you can say, like, the arts, right? But you, it's harder to go all the way to the source. But we do have to, I think, make this shift in how we talk about these benefits because what's happening is when we only talk about the arts or arts and culture, what that serves to do is to alienate artists from the fruits of their own labor, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the question in my mind is like, one, how do we get this information out into the world so that artists themselves can just every day talk about like, this is what the arts do? Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, the cultural narrative is that the who cares about the arts? That's not important. We need rockets so we can blow things up we need we need uh petri dishes so that we can you know track bacteria we you know we need who designs those though yeah exactly (laughs) exactly we need self-driving cars we don't arts i don't need your painting you know but actually this stuff is really fundamental to society but it's not the thing like the thing has can be attached to the outcome but the the fundamental component of all of this is the artist. It's the artist and their labor. And so what I would love to see is somehow to make a shift in the kinds of conversations that we have, the textures of the conversations that we have around the arts generally, where these benefits are being made visible and the artist is being made visible as the person who produces the benefits, not the arts, but the artist, right? 
Yeah, it's crazy what a huge discrepancy there is between our understanding of the the influence of art in our lives versus the role that artists have. And I just had to look this up because I, I didn't want to misquote it. And I don't know if this is from the same study um, because this is sort of older now, but on, um, on the website of United States Artists, uh, which is a national grant-making organization, they cite this 2003 study from the Urban Institute on the about page of their website, which had revealed that of Americans surveyed, 96% said that they valued art in their lives, while only 27% valued artists. So it's, it's you know, statistically <laughs> reinforcing exactly what you're saying. And I have some theories rude. about this. I think that, yeah, I, I feel like a big part of it is that many people don't, it's hard to value what we can't see or understand and I think a lot of that creative labor is really invisible or you know we tend to have very limited and or romantic ideas of what it looks like to be an artist we don't necessarily realize that artists are everywhere they're your like they're your local you know craftsperson woodworker painter they're you know working in all of these places you know or, or I think being you're a great example of an artist who's playing all these different roles you know you're a visual artist you're also a writer you're making all these different types of work and contributing in these different ways. But I think, you know, for the everyday American, we don't necessarily see all of the ways that visual artists are active participants in our society. And so I think um, even honestly, like within the community of artists themselves, I don't think we would even need to have this podcast if there was as much transparency and visibility around what the actual work and careers of artists looks like, you know? So yeah. I, I do think that there is a real, I don't know, like there, there's just not a lot of visibility around the real work of being an artist and what um, creative workers do. And so um, the other thing I, I feel like maybe is contributing to this is that we we don't have any real like real collective, like organizing body. Um, you know, we just had uh, actually a great uh, conversation with Ruby Lerner, who is the founding director of Creative Capital. And um, she had talked about this, how, you know, in uh, just years of working within the arts and um, advocating for artists specifically, not just the arts, but, you know, really working on behalf of artists that one of the reasons it is such a struggle at a national level or to create more legislation that supports artists is um, we don't necessarily have the, uh, there's no sort of like collective body. We have, you know, Americans for the Arts, certainly, and, and things like that. But yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear how even the findings from your report around what artists need, um, often they're, they're very human needs. And I feel like this came up in, this is just reminding me of so many things now, um, Maybe, Amanda, you can help like fill in some of the gaps. But mm -hmm. I know a couple of years back when really like early in the pandemic, we had done the interview about Artist Relief Fund and they had talked about some of these studies, I thought, where they were f figuring out what artists were looking for in that time, like what were some of their most pressing needs. And it it wasn't even like studio space or art supplies it was just like I need like you know healthcare and like figuring out how to pay my bills and they're mm -hmm. just all these really human needs that aren't even specific to artists necessarily so um, just the ways that that intersects with other issues and like how do we plug in the like needs and desires of artists with these other types of 
like advocacy work or organizing and like where those points of intersection and yeah those are a lot of thoughts uh, sorry for <laughs> monologuing there but I guess I'm curious like had you in creating this report were like as far as the timeline goes were, were you also was this in tandem with some of these nationwide studies were you looking at some of those as you were creating this because um, it seems like there are a lot of parallels or similarities with some of those national reports around you know what Portland artists need versus what artists around the country need and were were some of these connections drawn after the fact or was this something that you were like seeing as it, you were developing it? I think most of the research that I was relying on outside of my own like getting the the information from the Portland artists but the the institutional research that I was relying on was really mostly pre-pandemic um, because not a lot. When I started writing the report up, it was February of 2021. And so there wasn't a lot that had been released because, of course, institutions, they work on much slower timelines. Like I, mm -hmm. you know, the nice thing about doing things solo is that you can be really nimble. But a lot of the information that I got came from Americans for the Arts and also from, I'm blanking on the name of the study, but it, it's, um, it was a, an aggregate of other studies that broke studies on the Arts into like five or six components about things like the Arts and emotional well-being or the arts and, uh, you know, civic participation or things like that. There's a really great one called The Social Well-Being of New York City's Neighborhoods that looked at all five boroughs Ooh. of New York. And there are a lot of really good conclusions in there. But the, um, the big one that I'm thinking of is called Understanding the Value of Arts and Culture, the AHRC Cultural Value Project. And it is basically, I think it's like, it's 200 and some pages of wow. uh, summaries of other studies. Um, oh, wow. And so, uh, yeah, so they look at a bunch of different themes. They talk about the cultural value to the individual. They talk about the economy. They talk about communities. Um, they talk about civic engagement. They talk about health. And, uh, and it's very rigorous. Like, they talk about the methodologies of these studies. Um, mm -hmm. They have a great section on conclusions, so it really is like this this great aggregate of all this information. But of course, Americans for the Arts also like they have these uh, fact sheets, you know, two and three page PDFs with like really good bite sized chunks of information. You know that like I always look at them and I think like, man, this is what artists need to like whip out when they're having yet another holiday conversation with a relative who's like. Yeah, so uh, your drawings, you, you make money at that? And it's like, you know what, that's, yeah. that's not the pertinent question here. The pertinent question is, are you changing society with what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And the answer, Uncle Bob, is yes. <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> we yes. will definitely link that report so that <laughs> next oh time God. you're at that holiday dinner, you can just whip it out and show yes. them the stats. Yes, we want our artists <laughs> backed with data. <laughs> totally, absolutely. I mean, we live in a data-driven society, right? So, and it mm -hmm. exists, it's out there, so why not use it to our advantage? Oh yeah, and I think so many times, all of us probably deal with those questions from somewhere. It's like, how do you make a living? What are you doing? What does it mean to be an artist? What is this for? <laughs> why? We're like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. If you can explain your job, I surely can explain mine. <laughs>
I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, Nicole, do you have any more questions before we begin a wrap up? I have so many more questions. I feel like we could talk with you for hours, but I guess I'll just pose it to you, Bean. Is there anything um, that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to make sure to address? Well, is there anything that we... We've talked about so much. I think we've really covered a lot. <laughs> we've really covered a lot. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think I would just say, like, I wouldn't trade my life for anything it's a weird life and it is a life that I can't easily explain to somebody who, you know, has a more traditional or conventional job where, you know, they go and they do their work and they may love what they do, but when they leave, that work is more or less over. Like, I don't, I don't know what that life is like. I haven't had that life. It's not that I haven't had jobs where, you know, I worked retail, I've, I've been a waitress, a hostess, a prep cook, like all those kinds of things. So it's not like I haven't had jobs that I couldn't leave, you know what I mean? And then like the day's over and that's that. But like my life is not like that now. It's, it's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. Like there I'm, and maybe that like somebody would probably like give me a tap on the back of the hand and say, that's not healthy. But like the truth is I'm always at work because I'm always thinking about this stuff. I'm either, I'm either planning something in my head for a studio project or, you know, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing the line of an essay in my head, or I'm, I'm thinking about like strategies for artists to talk about how they contribute an enormous amount of value to the world, you know, or, you know, some, there's always something in my head where I'm like, how do we amend this? How do we make it better? How do we move it forward? Because, because, you know, I'm grateful to be part of this community of people who are doing amazing things. And then the question just becomes like, how do we get support for it? You know, how do, mm -hmm. how do we get support for it among ourselves as a community, but also like, how do we get support from outside the community and we bring people in so that they understand mm -hmm. the value of it too. So, yeah. Yeah. Preach. No shit. It's another no shit moment. <laughs> yeah. Oh shit. No shit. <laughs> Oh, yes, I hear that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful note to wrap it up on. I feel like you described that so wonderful. I, I just think so many artists can relate to that, like feeling of things not turning off. And I just hearing you talk about your own work and experience is definitely resonated. And I'm so glad that we finally got to have this conversation. And it was well, well worth it. <laughs> Years in the making, worth the wait. And we're just so grateful to you. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us and for being so willing to share. Thank you both very much. And yeah, no, I wouldn't have been able to talk about this five years ago. None of this had happened. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that the opportunity was now instead so that we could talk about these things that are, that are like hopefully, possibly at this moment of changing. If we had talked about this kind of thing, you know, five years ago, I would have had very different things to say and maybe less optimistic things to mm -hmm. say. But, but I feel instead, I see the challenges ahead, but I actually feel like energized by them rather than, mm -hmm. rather than um, exhausted by them. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And before we fully go, where can listeners find your work? Oh, well, I have a website. <laughs> uh, beangilsdorf.com. The study can be found at the Center for Arts Research at the University of Oregon. That's 
that's where it was published. And my, a lot of my writing can be found just by going to a couple of these publications that were mentioned, like Art Forum or Art in America, and uh, just, I guess, put my name into the search bar. But uh, yes, that's, that's where you can find me. Little bits of me scattered around the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll include links to everything you mentioned uh, with the show notes so any listener can follow along with whatever we've been talking about and dive deeper into these studies and the data. Yeah, cool. If I think of anything else that could be linked, you asked me about advice, I think, or like what keeps my practice going. And I'm just remembering that there's this like... Mm. I think because I turned around this way, there's, I have taped to my wall, this like set of um, 10 instructions by the astrologer, Rob Brezhny. If you're, Mm. I don't know if you're familiar, I printed them out and I've been like carrying them around for forever. But if I can find the webpage that they came from, maybe we could link to that too, or something like that. Cause they're, they're, they're great. They're just like, don't listen to your junk monkey. You you know, like, um, (laughs) like what you focus on expands. Like, the, just this whole list of, like, ways to kind of, like, recalibrate in those moments where you're like, what am I doing? So, well, anyway, talk to you soon. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! Can you hear you clearly? Oh, hey, Sprout. Are you going to make me open the door? Okay. Sorry. I'll uh, open the door for the cat before she starts scratching which I'm sure she'll want to be back soon anyways. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't like a closed door in this Uh -uh. house. In, out, in, out, in, out. She's like, I need easy flow in all spaces, which is fair. I like it. Um, I respect it.